0: to do with it, nor is it common sense. And we sometimes mistake wisdom with common sense. I just pray that there would be common sense, unsanctified common sense, but at least some kind of common sense in the leadership of this nation. I'm praying for sanctified common sense, but I'll take unsanctified common sense. Because in reality, sanctified common sense is closer to the idea of what wisdom is. It is that which God gives to us. So Solomon is going to deal with the wise or otherwise. And he's going to put for us these contrasts and he's going to talk about foolishness. And that really is where he takes us. But in talking about foolishness, he helps us to understand much about wisdom and what it should look like in our life. So the title of the message just comes from the text, as we've seen as we walk through this book, A Dead Fly in the Ointment or Dead Fly in the Perfume would make a little bit more sense for us, but this is the journey he takes us on. Just like chapter 9, he starts us off with the thought in the hand of God, and now he helps us to understand where he's going to take us in chapter 10. And it really flows out of the end of chapter 9, but he helps us to understand the little folly is dangerous. Sometimes we might think that in our life a little bit of sin is okay. But a little bit can do a lot of damage. And so he helps us to see this. And it's interesting because the word folly occurs nine times in this chapter. But again, his focus is going to be on wisdom. But nine, chapter 9 ends with destruction is easier than building up. Or we could put it this way. It takes far less to ruin something than to build it up. I learned this lesson early in life. My first job started working with a company my brother-in-law worked with. And my job in downtown Pasadena was we were taking this building that was just somewhat destroyed by fire, and they were going to convert it into a hotel. It was an apartment building. My job was demo, and I thought this is great, right? You don't need to be very intelligent to do this. You just take a sledgehammer, break everything up, and throw it into a dumpster out the window. That's it. Don't have to measure. Don't have to cut. Don't have to be precise on anything. You just tear it apart. But we can do this in our life. It's so much easier for us to tear down than it is to build up. Why? Because building up takes precision. Building up takes time. There's no quick remedies in Scripture. We keep looking for gimmicks on how to do this and how to do that. And we want a shortcut to get to here and a shortcut to get to there. There's no seven steps to holiness. There is a lifetime of pursuing holiness. So, Solomon helps us to understand that it is a lot easier to ruin something than it is to build something up. Or we can put it this way it is easier to make a stink than create sweetness. The question we have to ask ourselves is is there a stench in our own life? Is there something about our life that as we walk down the street, as he talks about in verse 3, that people look at us and they say, There goes a fool? Or do they look at our life and then they smell the the aroma from our life? And do they understand that we walk in the presence of Christ? Do they smell that on us? Do they see that as we walk down the street, that there goes someone who is walking in wisdom? Can they see it without us even speaking a word? So the connection is he's going to express the theme in chapter 9, verses 17 through 18. And he's going to elaborate on a chapter 10, verses 1 through 20. Chapter 9, he ends with talking about the poor man who is unheard, but rulers can make themselves heard easily. The shouts of the powerful may override wisdom. We see this in our day. Rulers in the land, and they scream loudly, and they claim all of these taunts and whatever else, and they say all of these things at the top of their voice, and they rattle their sabers and everything else, and they try to get everyone to cower to them and to listen to them and to bend to their will rather than to the will of God. It's interesting because he also strikes a thought for us as he talks about verse 17 of chapter 9, the words of the wise heard in quietness. Someone who has true understanding has a calm and quiet spirit. Someone who doesn't understand is one who argues, complains, murmurs, gripes, shouts to try and make their point rather than just speak the truth. And quietness and peace. Wisdom is also easily overthrown, verse 17, for a small mistake makes a smell of folly greater than the fragrance of wisdom. So here he's going to help us understand that foolishness really stinks. Can't put it any other way. It's as simple and that straightforward as as we can be, as he starts off in chapter 10, verse 1. Dead flies make a perfumer's oil oil stink, so little foolishness is weightier than wisdom and honor. The first thing that he helps us to understand is that folly creates problems for those who commit it. When we do foolish things in our life, i.e., when we sin, it comes at a consequence. And oftentimes it isn't just our life that's affected by it. Others around us are affected by our sin. I also learned this at a very young age. When I knew that I wasn't walking the way that the Lord wanted me to walk, I left home. And I thought, well, at least if I'm going to live like this, and I knew that it was the wrong thing, but at least I wouldn't drag my family through this. If I'm not at home, they don't have to walk through this with me, they don't have to see it, they don't have to deal with it. But little did I know how intimately connected family is. That no matter how far I went, I still affected the family. So I call home one day after being gone for a while, and my dad puts my little brother on the phone. And he says, Steve, when are you coming home? And I realized that his life was being impacted by my foolishness. And Solomon wants us to understand this lesson clearly. Therefore, he draws on imagery that he used in chapter 7, verse 1, as he talks about a good name. It's a fragrant perfume. So he picks up the imagery here in chapter 10, verse 1, and he says, What dead flies are to perfume, folly is to the reputation of a wise person. The conclusion is logical, it's not simply based on reason but revelation. In other words, the wise people stay away from folly. You just don't walk in sin. There's nothing pretty about it because it always leads to ruin. It's inevitable. This is where it goes. For the wages of sin is death. So when we look at the sin of our life, what do we bring with it? Death. We kill all kinds of things. We kill marriages. We, we kill households. We kill parent and child relationships. We kill communities. We kill churches. We kill so many things with the sin in our life. And Solomon wants us to understand the stench of it all. The reality of the fact is that God hates sin. He can't stand it. He is a holy God. Leviticus, the, one of the most avoided books in the Bible, but one of the most needed books to be studied by all of us. Because how do you approach a holy God? Through sacrifice. Surrendering your life completely to Him. How do you walk in a relationship with the holy God? That's the second part of Leviticus. You had God come down in Shekinah glory to reside in the midst of his people. And if he is going to be present there, they need to know how to live life. If you're going to have a relationship with God, you cannot walk in foolishness. And how many times do we lie to ourselves? Yes, I have a relationship with Him who is pure light, who has no darkness in Him at all. And we say that we walk in fellowship with Him, and yet we continue to live in darkness. We lie and we do not speak the truth about our life. Solomon says that it will ruin that which otherwise would be good. We have the old saying, right? One rotten apple spoils the whole barrel. We've seen it in our households. We have the fruit dish in the corner up on the counter. I see it every time. We get all these nice juicy apples. One starts to go bad, they're all gone. This is what happens with sin in our life. It just doesn't stay with us. It spreads to our spouses. It spreads to our kids. It spreads to those who are around our household. It spreads to those in the workplace. It spreads to those who are in the church. It doesn't just stay with us. A little, he says, destroys all that is fragrant and beautiful. One has said very well, a man may commit one sin, and this can destroy a lifetime of virtue. How scary is that? How important does this help us to understand wisdom in our life and the necessity to walk in the will of God? Remember a pastor... It was related to me by marriage. But this pastor, he had a large church, if you want to look at it from an American perspective. Thousands came to worship. It was one of the biggest commuter churches of the time. He was on the radio. Everyone knew his name. Beautiful wife, lovely kids. Had an affair with his secretary church selling carpets for his brother. One, one moment of sin in your life and you have unraveled all of that. One of my professors who I love dearly cherished a gift from him was a Bible with a nice note in it when I graduated from seminary found out that he was counseling a married woman, and they had an affair. They committed adultery. Whatever impact he had, it unravels all of that. When the stink gets on you, it doesn't just wash away, depending on the stink. And Solomon wants us to understand this. Just a little folly can decrease the value of wisdom. An example, a wise person can end his opportunity to provide wisdom to others by giving foolish advice just one time. This is biblical counseling, right? This is why you go to the book and you speak only from the book because this is the only place where there is authority. Thus saith the Lord. It is the only religious book that says that. You know this. The Koran doesn't say it. I've read it. This is the only book that says, Thus saith the Lord. In other words, this is what I want you to do. This is what you will do. Because I am creator. You are creature. And I must be Lord and master of your life. If we go outside of this and we give advice to people, it's just our opinion. If there's no biblical principle behind that, and what if it's bad advice then, right? You taint any kind of impact that you can have in someone's life after that. Not only that, but he helps us to understand that it ruins the fool's course of life by consistently making bad choices. When he talks about wisdom and folly, he's talking about ways of life. Notice chapter 10, verse 3. Even when the fool walks along the road, he's talking about the course of his life. We've heard the saying, let your conscience be your guide if you have a good conscience. How do you know you have a good conscience? It is that which is shaped and molded by the word of God. Conscience doesn't make up the rules. It just functions based on what it's fed. You feed your conscience bad intel, it functions poorly. Scripture tells us you can harden it, you can defile it, you can make it impure, but you can also have a pure conscience, a clean conscience, a holy one, and thus, it all depends on what we feed it. Self-government is the most difficult of all government. You ever think about that in regards to your own life? It's always easy for us to give everyone else advice. (laughs) It's always easy for us to govern someone else's life. But what about our own? What kind of flies do we have in our ointment? He helps us to see in verse 3 that it ruins the fool's own reputation and legacy. A fool is easily spotted. Even when the fool walks along the road, his sense is lacking and he demonstrates to everyone that he is a fool. I can't help. <laughs> Every time I read this verse, this thought comes to me. So when we first moved up here, I, I was a substitute teacher in all the different Christian schools in the area. And so I was subbing at one school, uh, Kingsway, and I had a break. So I went to get some coffee. I needed a cup of coffee. I to face the kids for the rest of the day. So I go off and I get myself a cup of coffee and I'm driving back to school. and I'm sitting at a stoplight and I see this kid crossing the street. And everything on him was bigger than he was. His jacket was huge, puffy white, looked like the Pillsbury Doughboy. His hat was like three sizes too big. I didn't even know if he had a head under there. And then he had these pants, what I thought were pants, and I realized they were shorts. But he had them so low that his waist for his shorts were just above his knees. So as he's walking across the street, he's holding his pants up with one hand as he's trying to strut across the intersection. And all I could think was that you are a fool. And it just reads everywhere. You look like someone needs to change your diaper. And this is what I think of because Solomon says, look, you walk down the street, if you have foolishness in your life and you're living in folly, everyone sees it. You can't conceal it, because whatever deficiency is inside, it always comes out. Think about the things that we try to hide in our hearts and minds. And we think no one else can see this. Well, one, I always tell my kids, God sees it, and he will always expose your sin in your life. I don't have to be there to see you do this. He will let me know. (laughs) And he does. But here's the thing. Even with each other, we can't hide it. If something isn't going right in our life, we wear it on ourselves. So this one brother—I won't mention his name because some here know him—but I realized he had a tell. When things were not good between he and his wife, he always had a beard. His wife couldn't stand facial hair, so when things were good. He was clean-shaven. When things weren't good, he had a beard. And so I told him one day, I said, you know you have a tell. I can tell when your marriage isn't doing so hot. He says, how? I said, because you have a beard. He's like, I never noticed that. So then one day he shows up in my house and he's got a beard down here and a mustache is shaved off. And I'm like, conundrum, right? No, I can read it on your face. You both agreed to disagree. You had an argument and this is where you landed, right? Yes, a little smirk on his face. We can't hide the folly in our hearts. It always comes out. People will see us for who we are. And as he moves down in the chapter, when the fool opens his mouth, out comes foolishness. It's inevitable. We can try to hide everything from everybody, but it will come out. We always, we always behave what we believe. And even as we move through life, you don't have to do much. They can still read it in your life. Next, he helps us to understand who a fool is, and, and we need to answer this question who is a fool according to Scripture? The fool in Proverbs is assured of destructive destiny. You can go back and look at these passages for yourself. The destruction comes as part because of his rebellious attitude. The fool refuses instruction or discipline. Instead, they recklessly get themselves into trouble. They are also arrogant and untrustworthy. Fools speak impulsively and argumentatively. There is a moral aspect to the fool. Job's wife says to him, you know, why don't you just curse God and die? And Job called his wife foolish for this advice. It's a no brainer. (laughs) the last thing you want to do. The fool prefers evil and he rejects God. He rejects repentance and he chooses instead to repeat his folly. I love this proverb, 26, 11. As a dog returns to his vomit, so a fool repeats his folly. Such a graphic picture, isn't it? But this is what we do. We say, how disgusting for a dog to do that. And yet, (laughs) this is what we do when we go back and lap up our same old sin over and over and over again. Fools tend to bring others down to their level. It's interesting. You have someone do something foolish in their life, right, in a relationship. And they do something that's destructive to the other person then they'll try to egg that other person on so they'll respond in a destructive attitude, right? Because they know they're wrong and they don't want to be by themselves. Misery loves company. Foolishness, it loves to be surrounded by more fools. In other words, the fool won't build you up, he'll tear you down. This is the thing I had to learn with my friend Steve. We did everything together. We could finish each other's sentences. This is how we thought like each other. And we hung out and spent all our time together. But then I realized that he was living in foolishness and rebellion against God. And all he was going to do was tear me down. And I had to sever that friendship. I couldn't stay there any longer. I tell my kids, sometimes you're going to have to do this in your life. There are going to be those who are going to choose to live a foolish life and rebellion against God. And all they're going to do is draw you down and you're going to have to sever that relationship. You are going to have to be the wise one. Solomon helps us to understand that the perfumer's ointment was created by blending different spices. And this is an interesting background to understand this. So any addition of something small, such as a dead fly, would ruin the perfume. Flies in the ointment. The question we have to ask ourselves is, what are the dead flies in our life? What are those things that taint the perfume of Christ in our life? So that all the world just smells the stench? Maybe it's the housefly of pride. Is there arrogance that resides beneath the surface in your life? Just look at the things that you say and do. Does it show? How about the horsefly of jealousy? <laughs> you yeah, look around and see what everyone else has? Maybe you want that too. How about the blow fi, blow fi temper, right? person of understanding has a calm and quiet spirit. Someone who lacks that understanding, they have a temper. They blow up at everything. One, because they don't understand who's in true control. <laughs> Two, they don't have an understanding of the situation. And thus all they can do is just blow up and be angry. How about verse two, right hand, left hand? What in the world is he talking about? We know that he's not talking about political right and left, although it's interesting the connections that can be made, right? Conservativism, liberalism. It's always intriguing to me why someone would sit under a label of liberal theology, but they do, <laughs> and they embrace it. Ignorantly so. We reject everything supernatural. Then how do you have a theology? It's beyond me. I don't understand that, right? In those days, right-handed meant honor. Left-hand, dishonor. Or right-hand, correct. Left-hand, incorrect. This is a frustrating thing for me in our society today. Everything is politicized. Everything is politicized. The killing of babies, it's a moral issue. It's a grievous sin. It deserves capital punishment, according to Genesis. It's not merely an issue of right or left. Republican, Democrat. It has nothing to do with politics. Marriage. God instituted that to be the foundation of every society, anywhere and everywhere. It's not modern and traditional. <laughs> it's biblical and the violation thereof. We have to be cautious as believers because we find ourselves in these discussions and we have to stay on course. What are the things that we are talking about here? We must be the ones who define them because the world, they lack the understanding of God, right? They live in rebellion from God. They walk in foolishness. And as they plunge deeper into darkness they can't be the ones who give us the definitions to these terms. They don't define love. We define love. God defines love. His word makes it very clear. He defines everything else for us. He defines the sanctity of life. Why? Because we're all created in the image of God, even though we are marred by sin. It still calls from us a certain way in which we are supposed to relate to someone who has created the image of God, marred or not. We don't kill them. We don't murder. We're having all the wrong conversations. It isn't pro-life, right, and pro-choice. It is pro-life and pro-death. But we find ourselves getting caught up in the conversation that they want us to have and we are missing the true conversation. It's interesting that our English word sinister comes from the Latin word that means on the left hand. Isn't that interesting? Isn't it interesting that everything that seems to be destructive is on the left, right? There's a reason why the right is called the right. But here's the thing, we better be right. And the only way we can be sure that we are right is to be in the word of God. This is why exegesis is so vital. How you handle the word matters. Biblically left-handedness was also linked with incompetence. To have one's heart inclined to the right is to be upright, skillful, resourceful in one's daily life. To have one's heart inclined to the left is to be fumbling, incompetent at the wellspring of life. So why is one wise and another one a fool? It has to do with the heart. It's always a hard issue. Solomon has brought this out before and he will bring it out again. The center of our life, the master control that governs everything in our life is the heart. Proverbs 4.23, Solomon writes, Watch over your heart with all diligence, for from it flow the springs of life. What is the condition of your heart? Because that will help you understand the condition of your life. Foolish rulers, and it's interesting because from chapter 10, verse 4 on, he's going to give us different fools that we are not to imitate. Foolish rulers, foolish workers, and foolish talkers. And I'm going to dwell on this a little bit, and I have to. I'm going to introduce this to you. This is verses 12 and following. Words from the mouth of a wise man are gracious, while the lips of a fool consume him. The beginning of his talking is folly and the end of it is wicked madness. Just think about the definitions that are given here. You want to have a proper homartyology, the doctrine of man and sin? Right? Just look at some of these passages. (laughs) He goes on to say in verse 14, Yet the fool multiplies words. No man knows what will happen and who can tell him what will come after him. It's interesting that he's going to deal with the issue of our speech, how we talk. As Christians, I realize we are to be the most careful communicators in a fallen culture. Ideas have consequences, words, they matter, they bear meaning and significance. And we're going to have to give an account for that. I mean, the last song we sang, right, when Jesus returns, he's going to call into account the things that we have done in this life. Not just the things that we did, but every single word we said. Think about that now. Think about all the advice that came out of your mouth this last week to other people. Was it good advice? Was it biblical advice? Was it God-honoring advice? We know that we're supposed to tremble at God's word because he tells us in Isaiah 66, and this is an important part of Isaiah's work, because in these chapters he's going to talk about the future glories that are going to restored to the nation of Israel. This is the eschatological picture where God is going to distinguish between the sinner and the godly, and he says this in chapter 66, verse 2. These are the ones I look on with favor, those who are humble and contrite in spirit, who tremble at my word. Do you tremble at the word of God? I'm afraid every time I have to preach, my kids ask me, "Dad, do you get scared when you preach?" Yes, every single time. And I just need to let you know, I'm not afraid of you. <laughs> I know that I will give an account for everything that passes out of my mouth. So I tell men as they say, "I want to. I want to teach. I want to do Bible studies. I, I want to minister to the word, the word to people." And I say to them, "Be sure." Be sure this is what God wants you to do. Be sure you understand the implications. But what about the words we speak? I mean, so often we don't even think about it, but in this day and age... This is stated for us in Matthew chapter 12, verses 36 and 37. I tell you, on the day of judgment, people will give an account for every careless word they speak. Everyone, not some, everyone. For by your words you will be justified, and by your words you will be condemned. Think about that, right? Every careless word that has come out of your mouth That should stop us in our tracks. Next someone asks you an opinion or your advice. (laughs) Stop and think first. Maybe take a little bit to pray. I mean, consider how many words we speak. Every word that comes out of our mouth, our pins, our keyboards, our phones. Right? We're constantly communicating. He's going to talk about destructive words, unreasonable words, uncontrolled words, boastful words. Fools talk a great deal, but they don't say very much. He says they just pile word upon word upon word upon word. We should speak carefully, and sometimes we shouldn't speak at all. Learn this very important lesson in marriage. My wife comes to me with something on her mind doesn't mean she always wants me to give her an answer. But we're men. We want to fix things. They don't even finish saying what they're going to say, and we're already telling them solutions. Sometimes, brothers, we just need to close our yaps and listen. Because most of the time, we already know the answers. We just need to talk it out. Right? We just need to talk it out. And I'm glad the Lord taught me that lesson, because sometimes my wife just needs me to listen. (laughs) And the more I understand the Word of God, the less I'm ready to open my mouth and tell anybody anything. Because the more I study the Word of God, I find out how little I really know. Solomon said in chapter 3, verses 1 and 7, For everything there is a season, a time for every matter under heaven, a time to keep silence and a time to speak. There's times for us to be quiet, but there are times for us to speak up, and we need to speak up when it's that time. We live in an age of unceasing chatter, and it's just chatter. It's just noise. Never in human history have we ever had this kind of noise of human communication that is so constant all the time, right? And we're not even really communicating. I'm driving to the store the other day, Fred Meyer, and I see two young people and they're walking side by side. It's almost like they're linked at their shoulders and they're walking along the street, but both of them are on their phone and they're both texting. And I'm thinking, here you are walking along. They almost got hit by a car because they're glued to their phones. And I'm sitting there thinking, they're probably texting each other. You're right there. Turn and look at each other and have a conversation. What's wrong with you? We got people walking into fountains because they're not watching where they're going because they're constantly communicating. But are they thinking about the things that they're saying, right? Even at their thumbs. Even when we're quiet, we're not silent, right? We receive, we dispense, we talk through our digital media. I try to go to bed at five o'clock in the morning, I'm getting texts, guys want, they got questions and things going on in life and they want responses and even when you're trying to be quiet, it's not quiet. And that's fine. I have a 24-7 policy. I don't have office hours. Our present culture does not believe that a fool multiplies words. One level, it believes that multiplied words brings multiplied knowledge. Multiplied knowledge brings about multiplied wisdom. But on another level, not fearing God, it simply doesn't really care how many words flow. And they don't even care if they're true. So relentlessly inundates us with information, analysis, commentary, critique, punditry, mockery, through every communication stream whatsoever, we can't help be conditioned by this environment with social media. Nearly everyone has a broadcast platform. They can say anything they want to anybody they want. I mean, some kid in England is doing on TikTok, he's breaking into people's homes and surprising them, Right? Breaking into their homes just to see the kind of response that he will get from them. And then he posts it on TikTok. This is the lunacy that's out there. And people will say anything because they have a platform. So I tell my kids, just because you can doesn't mean you should. (laughs) People get angry. They immediately text it. They immediately put it in an email. They immediately stick it out there for everyone to see. We do this in the church when someone sins in the body of Christ. We're supposed to come alongside Matthew 18 and confront them one-on-one, face-to-face, by ourselves, in the quiet. And the principle of that chapter is keep it small as long as you can keep it small. If they don't repent, then you make it public. But no, not now. We make everything public. And once it's out there, you can't take it back. And one time I did this, I was on a website, had to do with ministry, and I saw that people were responding at the bottom of the page, and I started reading, and these people are they're just responding, and it's like, here's a believer and an unbeliever, and they're going at it. And then the believers start swearing, and then they're just lashing out, and I'm just going, what are you accomplishing for the faith? Absolutely nothing. You're just driving them closer to Satan. If you really care about them, find out where they live and take them out for coffee. Sit down across the table from them and have a conversation. Share with them the glorious truths of Jesus Christ. Anything social, cultural, political, economic, theological, any controversy, scandal, whatever, anytime they wish, regardless of whether they know or don't know. It doesn't even matter anymore if you have the facts. We just call people whatever we want to call them, accuse them of whatever we want to accuse them of, and it doesn't matter anymore. Social media is an immense, cacophonous form of multiplied, foolish, careless words for which every participant, whether they know it or not, will give an account to God. What do we say to people? Do we weigh the words that come out of our mouth? We're concerned about our leaders, but what about us? What about us? We don't like the things they're saying, but what are we doing for the faith? What does the world see from our interactions, right, on Facebook and everything else, and the things that we like and don't like, and all of that stuff? What are we doing for the cause of Christ? Are we walking in wisdom, or are we walking in foolishness? I leave the rest for you to ponder. They're pretty self-explanatory. Solomon makes some interesting interactions of words in the Hebrew, and we can't get into that, but we will next time. But I just challenge you to to spend time in chapter 10. There's a lot of great truths here. May God help us walk in wisdom and not folly. May we be a fragrant aroma of Christ in the lives of those around us, and may we not be a stench in their nostrils because of the foolishness that's in our life. Robert, would you close an order of prayer, brother?